with Optimism Vaccine. I'm Steve, and it's Sean Tober. So Sean's here. Sean, how you doing, buddy? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, we got some some goopy, horny movies to talk about today, and that's like my favorite thing in the world. So you didn't uh, even go with we have such sights to show you. We <laughs> have such sights to show. No, let's come on. You think I'm gonna go that cornball shit? All right, guys, uh, take two. Yeah, Adam Myros also here, unfortunately, uh, here to punch up my jokes, apparently. Myros, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right, Steve. No complaints. Uh, back from your trip to the Middle East to solve the Israeli-Palestinian <laughs> crisis? Wait, am I the one who posited a solution? I thought that <laughs> yeah, was Jerry. Yeah, I, I was going to say, are, are you ready to read your statement, uh, the, the, the correct answer to any and all ongoing issues? Uh, I, I'm not sure if I have such a statement, Steve, but, uh, Unbelievable. You know, feel free to put words in my mouth. I, I mean, everyone already knows you're an anti-Semite and, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's what we need to, to really emphasize here. Uh, I think also, that uh, really my policy on, on the current conflict is not to comment, uh, in any <laughs> forum on, on the current conflict. Uh, also here, he's back. From Ireland, and he's upset that we watched a bunch of Clive Barker, but didn't include Rawhead Rex because he likes watching that Irish priest get pissed on. It's Jack Easton. Yeah, I mean Rawhead Rex is probably, I would say, top five movies about a giant mutated penis destroying the Catholic Church. <laughs> you think it makes top five? I I yeah, think so. I mean, there's some controversy, but yeah, no, it's it it works. Yeah, it's like yeah, what if? You had a giant penisy rubber suit monster, and it was like inspired by the work of Ken Loach. Like that's that's pretty much it. Uh, but we're not talking Rawhead Rex, unfortunately. For some reason, uh, for some reason, I don't fucking know why. Uh, but but we are talking about Clive Barker because it's fucking Sean Tober, and Sean Glennis has gone his entire life without seeing Hellraiser, uh, which I can only assume is because you're a bad person. Or how how did this develop? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, I mean, I think it's about, I think it goes with the rest of the whole theme of Sean Tober, uh, or the whole thing <laughs> behind it, which is that I just never, never got into it as a kid, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but, yeah. um, I thought I had seen, uh, like at least one or two of his shorts, you know, like what are those, mm -hmm. th there's a series of those shorts in the nineties that were usually like grouped together, like anthologized. Um, and, but it turns out he didn't do any of those i think he wrote one of them but uh, yeah yeah that's about it well clive barker's a guy where once he really got famous you'll see his name slapped on a lot of things uh mm -hmm. but then his actual involvement can vary wildly uh sometimes he's like writer director executive producer fucking craft services the whole shebang other times they just put his name on a comic book or something or uh, yeah. you know, uh, a mid 2000s first person Clive shooter. Barker's yeah. Jericho. <laughs> uh, what about Clive Barker's undying? Another oh, banger yeah. of a game. Well, he yeah. wrote, uh, or, um, he, yeah, he wrote, uh, the masters of horror is what I was thinking of. And he wrote okay. Valerie, Valerie on the stairs. Um, but yeah, no, no directorial. I, I don't know who I'm thinking of though. Yeah. Uh, very prolific guy though. Uh, he's obviously English novelist. He's a playwright. Uh, he's a film director. He's a visual artist. He's done comic books, produced TV. He's produced feature films. He's done a lot of shit. And he kind <clears> of <throat> rose to prominence in the 1980s. Uh, he, he published a, uh, an anthology of horror shorts called uh, Books of Blood. And that kind of got him the rub from Stephen King. And that 
basically skyrocketed him to commercial critical success. And, and that was uh, adapted a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It was, and I don't know a single soul who saw it, but Jack I, Eason. Jack did. Yeah, Jack Eason. Check your letterbox. He's the one. Uh, Jack, you big books of blood fan? Uh, you know what? I actually I did watch. That's on Hulu, and I watched it one night because uh, I didn't. Re- I'd forgotten it existed, and mm-hmm. I don't remember much about it. I think it was fine. Two stars. <laughs> it's, it's like yeah, it's like it's like three stories with like a little book and things. It's like one just like the VHS horror series like that, and it's just sort of same mm. rules apply. It, it's kind of one of those things where you know a little bit more care, a little bit more necessity or reason to make it than just having the rights probably would have helped. But I, I don't yeah. remember being terrible Does it rise either. to the heights of Brian Yuzna's Necronomicon? I mean, that one I think is more fun, frankly. But. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, our buddy Clive, even though lately he's been just executive producing a bunch of shit that we've already forgotten about. Remember how they rebooted Hellraiser last year? I... I couldn't tell you a damn thing about it. Also on Hulu. Um, check our Patreon. <laughs> yeah, check out our Patreon where we talk about it. And I, I already forgot, other than I remember not liking it. Um, but anyways, he, uh, he started off in film, uh, basically creating scripts, helping to adapt his short stories. And this included Underworld, a.k.a. Transmutations, which he has disavowed. And I think it's still kind of a pain in the ass to find. I mean, in, in the era of, torrenting it's, it's probably it is not, getting a but, 4k release in like a month holy shit who's putting <laughs> that one out kino of course all right shout out <laughs> kino uh that's exciting and unexpected uh and then of course rawhead rex which is a uh it's a real video store classic uh it's got the aforementioned piss scene it's a load of fun uh, also disavowed by Barker, uh, because I can't imagine why. I mean, I, I'm sure yeah. it really fucking nails his intent with the work. Oh, for sure, for sure. And this is another theme too. It's like uh, a lot of times when his short stories have been adapted into other things, uh, both by Barker himself and others, uh, they usually get twisted around to the point where they're sort of not recognizable. This is a very like uh, Stephen King, like Lawnmower Man esque situation with a lot of his work. Uh, but yeah, Rawhead Rags and Transmutations, those were both directed by his homie George Pavlo, even though uh, I bet they're not buds anymore because uh, Barker was very loud and clear that he thinks they're dog shit. He continues to think that way. Uh, and then, of course, another one of his short stories ended up getting adapted into Candyland. But what Candyland? Is- Candyland. Candyland. Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> Candyland. No. Clive Barker's Candyland is, yeah, is quite it's, a It's got the, uh, the, what's, the the fucking what's the sludgy guy goopy or whatever that's that guy's fucking terrifying. can you can you imagine a whole extended clive barker boards of blood uh board game universe like this is what hasbro should be doing or mattel or whatever i, I would sure turn up to the cinema for these let's so like the barbie yeah, I mean, movie we've, we've got the barbie movie yeah this is this is the next logical step uh no unfortunately no Candyland, just candy man uh but in 1987 uh we get to our first Clive Barker movie, his debut, Hellraiser, which one hell of a fucking debut. Also, Sean, in case you're keeping track, the unifying theme that we accidentally stumbled into is Roger Corman for this month because yeah. Hellraiser comes to us from New World Pictures, believe it or not. Uh, <clears throat> this is like, I don't know, it's probably their most successful movie, I would imagine, and, and one of their last big ones before they sort of dissolve. But um, yeah, uh, Barker at this point, obviously he had kind of gotten his feet wet 
writing screenplays uh, back in the 1970s before he was particularly famous. He also uh, made a couple of short films, but really he did not know what the fuck he was doing. And he was the first to admit it. It's kind of amazing. Uh, although Roger Corman, clearly not the kind of guy who's worried about that. Uh, but yeah, he just gave Clive Barker $900,000 and said, do your thing. And uh, Barker actually remarked that he, quote, uh, didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens and said, uh, quote, if you'd shown me a plate of spaghetti and said it was a lens, I probably would have believed you. So a uh, good place to start from. But uh, because he's such a prolific artist and he had this lack of experience, I think it makes Hellraiser a particularly special movie because uh, in addition to having the hallmarks of a lot of Barker's best work, uh, visually, it's kind of one of a kind. Uh, and it plays into what I think is Barker's strength, which is, you know, he's got these big, imaginative, sprawling worlds that he creates. But I think his best uh, adaptations, the stories created from that for film, are ones where you can have kind of smaller, intimate stories inside of this big world, as opposed to having a big fucking world and uh, just the scope sort of outweighing your ability. Uh, Nightbreed. Sorry, Jack. We'll talk well, about you know, it. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I would agree with you. I think I think the key to a lot like a, a kind of recurring element in Barker's work is this kind of Illuminati almost style interlinking of everything. I mean, he's he's his books interlink, etc. And yeah, I mean, it's Nightbreed, unfortunately, is basically trying to do that on a speed run. And that that's a problem, which we'll get to in due course. Hellraiser, it's much more natural because it's okay to leave things unknown in it. So there's hell. Everyone knows what hell is. So, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to explain yeah. too much. And these dudes look like they're and, from and, it. So natural, natural connections. Oh, for sure. And Sean, I, I know that you really connected with this movie because it kind of gets the heart of a, of a problem that you've run into many times in your life. And that's who do you want to fuck more, your sister-in-law or your niece, right? Oh, I thought you were going to say puzzle boxes. Uh, yeah, uh, that is an issue. <laughs> I didn't know. I wasn't prepared to talk about that on, on this episode. That's okay. Uh, we're all about but, getting raw here, buddy. It's laid all out. <laughs> no, it is. Uh, it is funny how much this movie stems from uh, w a woman having the best sex of her life. Uh, from her brother-in-law yeah yeah for sure i mean that's that's another if we're gonna have another unifying theme here it's corman and then amongst barker's work i i think it really speaks to the power of a good dickin right mm -hmm. it's a classic <laughs> transformative power. I mean, you up the gore but i mean what i well, one of the things i do really like about hellraiser and i and i consider like cards on the table i think hellraiser is is a landmark of modern horror one of the best horror films that's ever been made i love it i watch it at least once a year um it's it's crazy good um but i think one of the things that's really great about it is that y there's a lot of extra gore and goop in there but it is ultimately a real throwback gothic horror film it's very much a film about like a spooky house and a woman pining for something you know uh, trapped mm -hmm. in her in in her various different roles and expectations um the the only issue and i mean this is something we're going to come back to again and again there's many issues in hellraiser which i have grown to kind of like as odd quirks over the years frankly but like that the primary issue and it's something we're going to return to over and over again of course is that clive barker was a 
really a queer artist. He's he's gay and his his work is very interested in gay themes, but no one was giving him money to make overtly queer art in the 80s and 90s. It, it just wasn't happening. So all of his work has to be kind of laundered through somewhat often banal, stilted, heteronormative romances and couplings. Uh, and Hellraiser has that to a certain degree too, but I think it, it works better than in some of his later works because the passion of this illicit romance between Julia and Frank is actually, this This works, you know, it, this is understandable and comprehensible as a forbidden thing, and you can view it through a queer lens, you can view it through uh, any other lens, it kind of, it still holds up as kind of a universal theme. It becomes more of a problem something like Nightbreed, where it's like, frankly, at the centre of it is two incredibly white-bred uh, man and a woman that you couldn't possibly give a shit about, and we're supposed to follow them through all this stuff. Um... So yeah, I, I I think this is the one of the issues with with Barker that returns repeatedly is the kind of like the the lack you know there's always the queer elements are there and they're fascinating and in Hellraiser and more so than ever because I mean this is a film that was heavily informed by the Cenobites heavily informed by body modification subcultures talk that like the the members of the band Coil who did the original score for this which is a really cool really weird electronic industrial score it's it's really beautiful it's up on youtube if you ever want to listen to it um and i honestly i think it's probably correct they changed it for a more traditional orchestral score which i also think is great it's it's rare that a movie gets two really interesting good scores um but you know with members of coil who were in those subcultures gave clive barker magazines about like extreme body modification when they were hanging out and that was something that he became interested in is like this idea i guess of you know molding flesh and transforming the outer self and and obviously this fosters a community of, of like-minded individuals who aren't going to get desk jobs in corporate america and 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 that's kind of informs this entire exercise um but of course here it's just played out for horror it's just kind of like icky gross stuff whereas you know one would imagine like i think one of the interesting things about, about like hellraiser or something is that clive barker is clearly i think quite like if if you gave Clyde Barker the puzzle box from Hellraiser, he would try and open it, I think. I think he wants to mm -hmm. go there. He wants to find out about this stuff. Uh, but then, you know, for the regular audiences, everything comes back to, like, boring man and wife kind of dynamics. And this is a recurring theme of his work, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, <laughs> the other thing I really like about Barker is uh, it, it just especially in Hellraiser, the way that he plays up kind of the melodrama with, within the, the normal ass heterosexual relationships here. And I, I just, I love the relationships in Hellraiser because part of this feels almost like a contemporary lifetime movie. You know, it's just this, Oh, the, the frigid stepmom and, and the daughter who knows something is up and that she's, you know, cheating on her husband and all this other shit. Uh, it just happens to be tied to, uh, a group of, I don't know, interdimensional sadomasochistic demons who want to rip your flesh off. So it's it's a fun marriage of of two things that I really really enjoy. So, uh, Sean, I I guess like seeing this for the first time, did did you have any idea what you were dipping your feet into with this? 
you know, in my mind, I kind of always conf- or conflated this and another uh, legendary horror film of the same era that I still have not seen, uh, Lawnmower Man. Um, and this is not Lawnmower Man. So I sometimes no. go, oh, yeah, this is the one with VR in it. And I go, oh, wait, no, no, that's that's Lawnmower Man. <laughs> that's actually Hellraiser Part 8, if you want that. Was it? Right. I thought it was seven was Hell World, but uh, who's counting? Seven. I'm who's counting? <laughs> how, wait, are, how many are there? Oh, there's at least eleven uh, at this point. Um, there, yeah. there are, there's eleven and the re- reboot, I think. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. and that's Clyde crazy. Barker's not really had. Yeah, no, I mean, ultimately, like one of the funniest things is that Hell Hellraiser. I think this very distinctive chamber play gothic romance film. Uh, somehow spawned a, a franchise, and it is so completely dissimilar to Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween, you know, sure. as, as a, as a mm-hmm. franchise there's, vehicle. Yeah, there's not really like a, a haunting bad guy. I mean, the as you've kind of talked about, uh, the the like bad guy is like there's a there's a sense of romance there. <laughs> it's not like this guy's coming to get me. Yeah, no, yeah. it was very yeah. pinhead. Ultimately, he wasn't wasn't even named. I mean, that, yeah, I think, the Cenobites, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, no, I mean, he became lead the lead Cenobite in this film. Yeah, yeah, he be, he became. But, I but think because the, the image was so strong that he just became mm-hmm. the new Freddy Krueger, basically. Right. right. Yeah, yeah I, it's I, very much one of those franchises where uh, it, it's just repurposed scripts. Like these aren't even respect as oh, Hellraiser sure. films. It's just like we had this laying around. Uh, people really dig Pinhead. Uh, we're gonna just uh, reconfigure it around this framework and slap it into the video market over and over again. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah ironically, yeah. I think Hell- the first three or so. Hell- Hellraiser Five was the first repurposed one, which Scott Derrickson actually was his first film, and it's it's not terrible, honestly, as as a movie. You know, it's it's entertaining enough. Then I think, ironically, the next original, like actually written as a Hellraiser movie. I think might have been Hell, the infamous Hellraiser Revelations Part Nine, which is the one that they like made in like three weeks, start to finish, because they were going to lose the rights <laughs> to the franchise. And honestly, they may still <laughs> pirated something out of another one. That's a really bad movie. If anyone wants to watch just the worst thing imaginable, um, yeah, yeah, man. and and they th- there's no Doug Bradley in that film either, which is no. He's, he's who is fucking Pinhead in that? Because that's <laughs> the only thing I like, no one knows. The, the image of that man is like burned <laughs> in my head because he's he's like a fucking like bug eyed Rodney Dangerfield looking motherfucker. He's a classic store brand Pinhead. Like, I mean, it's incredible. Doug Bradley said he he offered to be in the movie, and he says that the money they offered him wouldn't even buy him a reasonable fridge. So he he said no. Like it's not worth sitting in the chair for the makeup for that so which is fair yeah that'll do it that'll do it uh yeah yeah i mean just the the context of of pinhead kind of rising to the same level as like a freddy krueger or a jason voorhees or a michael myers i think it's just a product of the era that hellraiser was produced in where you kind of had to have your franchise character uh but it is it's it's kind of funny that in in the golden era of slasher films where Pinhead kind of gets lumped in with with all these other characters it could not be further from that. Uh, so that's why it's it's always fun when someone gets to watch Hellraiser for the first time and then you you slowly watch the realization that they're like, oh, this this is not what I thought it would be. This is one uh, of those pervert movies. 
Yep, one of those leering <laughs> pervert movies. Yeah, I, I think that honestly has a lot to do with the mystique. Is is it's hard to like even describe the the foundational like nature of this film and like what S and M is in popular culture. Like, you know, it's somehow a lot of it stems from fucking this perversion of it. You know, mm-hmm. what's, what's really it's funny. Like kind of, a really funny thing that someone mentioned to me, and I wasn't aware of this. I haven't, I haven't fact checked this through, but apparently in the earlier draft of the film, uh, Frank and Julia like spanked, like did some spanking, like at a sex scene, and apparently that got cut. That was too much in the fucking S and M horror movie. Like all the strips of ragged <laughs> flesh was fine, but it's like a man and a woman spanking is like nope, can't do it. Sorry, from Clive Barker, noted homosexual artist. And like just again coming back like this this wild filtering of the material like it's kind of amazing that Hellraiser I think comes out as strong as it does maybe that any of Barker's work comes out as strong as it does in film like in real a real kind of I guess message to how film is truly built around people who have money and often have the most anodyne tastes um it's it's amazing we have any good ones I yeah maybe this maybe it was a good cut frankly because there's there's a really bizarre sort of divide between the sex and the violence in this film even though it's coded as such you know but you have to you have to connect the dots in a way and uh that effect it really works i mean there's no uh there's no dissociation for me when you know the the hooks are coming out you know what that is as as an adult uh who has you know perversions of their own uh you know it's just one of those things you you know what's being what's being talked about what's what this is all about this intermingling pain and pleasure and yeah i I think you know if you dipped that in like oh well they were into spanking then maybe that cheapens it in a way like it, it kind of mixes the messaging you know like the fact that it's so separated uh makes it i don't know maybe a little more effective for me (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it yeah. wouldn't be the first I'm, I'm part. a big fan of Roger Corman's studio meddling in this movie. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, they well, did. And then some of the, the pushback they got from, from ratings board. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Ahead, they, sorry, they did say in the ratings board, yeah, I mean, there's with the hammer murder originally had far more blows when, you know, when the poor bastards they bring up to the attic and they, they edit it out and they ultimately, they, I, think they, I think they might have actually sent a, a, a thank you letter to the British Board of Certification claiming that by by trimming the scene it was actually way worse so um it would, wouldn't be the first time the editing kind of like picked it up and would also i think maybe cl- go in with clive barker being like you say it is remarkable how legible and coherent this film is considering barker was absolutely like he shouldn't have by all right he shouldn't have been given the money to make a movie he shouldn't have been a director there should have been someone else on set with him showing him what to do this is the kind of stuff that just doesn't happen nowadays, you know? Um, it, it's a, such a bizarre prospect, but that he had fostered, I think, enough of an artistic community around him, and obviously uh, the studio supported him, you know, gave him decent supporting uh, crew, like director of photography and so on. I mean, these were experienced people, that they were able to get his vision through um, but yeah, very, mm-hmm. very kind of a strange thing. I mean, the, the movie has a very odd lilt to it. Um, and there are certain like key changes. Obviously, it started out as the Hellbound Heart, the novella that it came from. And in that, I mean, Kirsty was originally was, was another adult who was, you know, had designs on, on Larry or whatever. I think his name was Rory in the in the novella. He wasn't there was no Larry. 
um, and then she got turned into his daughter in this, which kind of changes the dynamic significantly and kind of desexes part of it because it's no longer it. It could used to be a love tri- or like rectangle, I guess, in the Hellbound Heart, and now it's it's been trimmed to kind of a love triangle with a kind of virginal daughter somewhere in the middle of it. Um, although it's interesting because she does have a boyfriend and he's a bit of a useless piece of shit, which I guess features into a larger <laughs> theme within the movie of like just ineffectual men. Um, you know, Larry is is just kind of a useless, idi- oblivious idiot. And Frank, for all his failings, is at least, you know, believes in something. It just so happens to be awful. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> but, but it's something. There's heat there. Um, so yeah, you know, there's a lot of kind of moves, you know, a lot of people like their problems with the movie and I do understand them are like Kirsty is not a fascinating character to be kind of grounded in as kind of the audience's perspective person. Um, you know, her, her whole experience of being guided in feels a little bit away from the central drama, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I think, I think it's all just like, you know, the, the, the strange necessities of, kind of hammering this into a semi-commercial film, which then ultimately led to an incredibly commercial franchise. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. so uh, such a bewildering trip, considering the initial ingredients. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a fascinating thing to watch, knowing what it became, because it, so much of it is like, the Cenobites are not in the fucking movie, the puzzle box is not in the fucking movie, it's all like, it's in the last 20 minutes of the thing, is what all of this iconography takes place and and really the bulk of this film is is this sort of chamber play where this corpse is rising from the dead by being fed uh, you know these uh, philanderers and that that's really the meat of this film and it is so foreign to what uh the franchise became yeah oh totally which is totally. like yeah minute 5 somebody's opening up the fucking puzzle box <laughs> mm-hmm. i i think too that you know, one of, one of the things this film's benefit is uh, classic Corman meddling. He decided that uh, even though the movie originally was supposed to take place in, in the UK, uh, Corman thought that it would play better financially if they made it, you know, take place in the States. So they had to redub some voices, do some other things. Uh, but they did a really fucking shoddy job of it. <laughs> so I thought it, it, it took actually. Place the UK. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, it's supposed to be in like New York City. Uh, so it, it it gives it this almost otherworldly, like beyond reality feel to it because, uh, you know, out, outside of the home itself, like 95% of this movie probably takes place inside of this house. And then all of the other locations feel very like isolated and, and totally disconnected. And then on top of that, you're, you're told of on a few different occasions that, oh, yeah, they're, you know, it's New York, Brooklyn, blah, blah, blah. But then all the visual markers are totally different. Like there's the fucking like weird like water compressor thing, the bathroom, all the light switches are outside the door. Like there's all these like weird Europeanisms going on. The, the movie uh, so is, it really the movie does. is it set in London. It, it is set in London. They they talk. They move from Brooklyn to London. Yeah, but, I, I, but they I did. I know read... that they said like this couldn't be worse than Brooklyn, right? Yeah, you know, least, I assumed UK because the the wife is UK, and they keep talking about coming back. And also, every man she brings back to her or their house uh, looks like Phil Collins. So I'm like, that's got to be. <laughs> but only one of them has a British accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there, there's definitely there's a weird uh, transnationalism to it with them. Um, 
Yeah, and I think certainly some dubbing. And, and Sean Chapman's American accent is... I don't know if he's dubbed. I think he is, though, because he's obviously he's a British actor, and I don't think that's his own voice playing because he has to play an American. Um, but it, it is set in London. I mean, Kirsty is walking down by the London docks, so, which are totally transformed at this point, but I guess reminiscent for all fans of the Long Good Friday will we'll recognize the, the general vicinity of that. Um, but yeah, I would agree. Like, otherwise, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there's... The outside world is a weird just set of, of kind of strange locations. And I mean, like, where the hell is the pet shop and all the the things at the hospital? I mean, the hospital, <laughs> Christie's hospital room is like the weirdest, like, cavernous, dark space imaginable. Like, it, it is, she must be on the public insurance mm. or whatever, not, not on private. Um, <laughs> you know, like, just goofy shit throughout. And then, of course, you have the weird Orientalism thrown in at the start, too, with the the elderly mm-hmm. gremlin selling Chinese man who <laughs> gives the box away to people, which is very much a marker of its time, you know, it's like we're the most unknown sure. things China, so, you know, off they yeah. go, minor minor quibble I suppose at this point, all removed in the remake, mm-hmm. so they they, they ironed <laughs> they out it. every, yeah, they fixed it by making sure there's no wrinkles and you will never think about the movie ever again after it finishes yeah, it's good. Aren't that's the Cenobites like space aliens or something in that movie? I don't even fucking They're just remember. super rubbery. They, they just, I, I don't know, man. It's, it's like, it was, it was irking me more and more because, I mean, watching a bunch of Barker's films, like really all three of the films we watch for this podcast, I'm struck by like Clive Barker's. There's a very clear queer overtures through all of them and none of them can make them explicit. They all have to be sublimated through a kind of a heteronormative kind of framework. And you would think, Jesus, 2022 fucking Hellraiser reboot. What better time to redress this? I don't think in 11 or 10, I guess, excluding the reboot, like 10 Hellraiser movies, there's ever been a queer couple. I don't think there's ever been like an overtly kind of like queer element to any of them that I can recall. It's been a while since I've seen some of the later entries, but I don't think so. You know, so that reboot, what better time? And there's there's one gay couple who the film isn't about. Is literally that's their they're over like they exist. The, the reboot acknowledges that gay men exist, um, and sometimes live with each other, and then they disappear because the movie isn't about them. And it's like just such an absolute just shit show of a thing. I mean, there's lots of other things wrong with the movie too. Like for example, the reboot is mostly about drug addiction, but it doesn't understand why anyone would like doing drugs, which is wild in a in a franchise that is all about you know pain and pleasure and forbidden sensations, mm. um. Yeah, incredible yeah. missing of the mark there, and it's not like they didn't have I don't even know fucking... if you can call it a remake. We'll just call it the newest entry in the franchise, because to call it yeah. a remake is... Uh, I think a uh, reboot, yeah, probably, because it's basically just, yeah, it's Hellraiser, but without the baggage, effectively, of, of all those sequels, just and it looks new and shiny, but it's, it's just, uh, you know, you had 30 years to fucking figure something out, and they didn't figure out shit. It's just incredible. Whereas, again, mm-hmm. the original, for all of its flaws, I just think is a fascinating film and a beautiful-looking film. It's just got the wonderful shadows and every time the light pours through the cracks in the old walls and everything, just this incredible mystique to it. I think it's just a remarkably just interesting, curious film, um, which, you yeah. know, is what brings me back to it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just and the I, iconography, man. Uh, Uncle Frank is fucking incredible effect. 
but just the Cenobites are just such an enduring thing that oh, they yeah. all get their fucking nicknames. You got the Chatterer, you got Butterball. I, I guess that uh, people don't really have a nickname for for the lady, but uh, Steve and I always call her Vagina Neck. neck. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I have a feeling some people call her Deep Throat, which is the same thing, but I think, she's, oh. I think officially she's just Lady Cenobite. <laughs> yeah, female yeah. Cenobite in this. Female story. Cenobite, yeah. Nobody really has there. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for, I mean, for people of our age, and I don't know, Sean, if you had this too, but like, I mean, Pinhead staring back at you from the video store wall felt like uh, a key image for everyone. Everyone knew Pinhead, even though no kids watched Hellraiser movies. Like, they were, like, Hellraiser no. was way beyond what anything parents, like, parents will let you watch Halloween. They don't give a shit. There's nothing really in it. There's some boobs. That's about, like, that's the worst part of it. And then, like, a stabbing here and there, but, like... Hellraiser is like genuine adult content, effectively, because it's about romance. So <laughs> you can't let kids watch that. So Hellraiser, like Pinhead, always had this this great mystique to me, and it's such a just a powerful image. You know, it just looks scary. Mm -hmm. Really looks scary. Where every yeah. other horror movie and, doesn't. And Sean, I I know I I shamed you earlier for not seeing this one, but I, I think another thing that is significant too is because of the type of content that is in this movie and, and how. You know, it was initially given an X rating for uh, explicit sexual content and this, that, and the other thing. This is not a movie that typically aired on like cable <laughs> outside right. of premium channels. Like you didn't, it wasn't like, oh, it's, it's Halloween night and I am, you know, watching some cable channel and they're playing all of the, uh, you know, Friday the 13th movies or all the Halloween movies heavily edited because you could do that. Hellraiser, you did not fucking play. Like, it, it just, it was never on TV. Uh, it was just sort of this thing that was off in the distance. Like, it, it was kind of like untouchable to you as a kid. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. which well, added to the mystique. And if somebody, yeah, you're, you're right. Because if you, if it's not on TV or whatever, like, uh, if it's not easily accessible, then you have to really be into shit and you have to, like, go looking for it, right? Or, like, finding, mm -hmm. finding a way to, to access it. But, um, if somebody had told me that Clive Barker was a queer filmmaker, I would have watched all his stuff years ago. I would have read everything because that's just, you know, I'm an ally. But uh, I didn't know that until this. <laughs> it's so sad. Damn. Yeah. Myros actually had the exact opposite uh, yeah, reaction yeah. when he found out he was pissed <laughs> that he'd watched all of his work because he's a bigot. But, you know, it's whatever. Um, anyways, Sean, let me let me frame this up for you. If uh, pain and pleasure are indivisible, would you say Nightbreed is your favorite movie? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so chronologically, it goes Hellraiser, Nightbreed, Lord of Illusions. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, I think this was his. Uh, this was his big swing. Like, oh, Hellraiser was a success. Here's a bunch of money, and uh, yeah, this happened. <laughs> it was not successful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it still isn't. Uh, yeah, no, this is, um, I, I don't know. It was kind of hard. It's kind of hard. Cause I watched Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions back to back. So, uh, I mean, I have different thoughts on, on between them, but, uh, they both feel so, uh, full of like tangents that, it, that like they just go down, you know, where like Hellraiser, it was kind of nice to watch it last, honestly, because it's just like a straight line. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's just kind of like focused on this one thing, 
Uh, even though, you know, the Cenobites sort of come in and, and cloud up the narrative, not in a bad way, but um, add, you know, a different world. Uh, like Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions to me are just like full of like other worlds that that he's introducing. And Nightbreed mm-hmm. is just, yeah, I, I the problem with Nightbreed is that one of my least favorite things was like if we think about horror as stuff that like you know a lot of people's dads watched uh that that you would get into it that way or maybe you know not get into it that way one of the things my dad watched because he didn't watch horror movies really or at least not until maybe we we went to bed he watched a lot of sci-fi channel back when it was s-c-i-f-i um Mm -hmm. and i always thought that was dumbest shit ever and nightbreed was like uh having your dad just watch sci-fi channel for way too long (laughs) (laughs) like farscape or something yeah yeah exactly it's fucking it's farscape it's and then uh, even trying to contextualize or like how the fuck do you explain this to someone it's just like oh it's like spooky narnia and there's all these different monsters and one of them's like a horny porcupine and the other one looks like (laughs) Like C tier McDonald's mascot Mac tonight, and then I, I what? It's, I it's hate just it. a fucking lot. It feels like it's two hours of exposition. You sum it up as it is literally it's gay Star Wars, and that's what it is. Um, yeah, I'm assuming well. everyone yeah. did, did we did we all watch uh, the director's cut of this? Uh, there's three hour. cuts. There's there's yeah. the theatrical. There's the two hour, and then there's the. Uh, there's the cabal you cut, have on which your is, hands is cut. being built yeah. up and up and is now up to three hours and 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, no, cause I think, yeah. I think it's interesting because, um, so I'm the only one who did this and I don't recommend anyone do this unless you're, you're already familiar with it. Enjoy the material on some level. I did watch the like three plus hour cabal cut and I've got to say, and then just before this podcast, I watched the theatrical cut, which I've actually never seen before. I'd never watched the original version, which was actually the version that was available for, 24 years i think was the only version available the director's cut was only recreated i believe in 2014 um there were yeah. earlier versions of the cabal cut uh, the extended longer version kind of circulating on vhs and stuff but um clive barker's version had never been restored and uh, essentially sean is completely right about this movie like it it, it absolutely has a, some of that air of like sci-fi bullshit and um there's it's too much exposition and it's all tangents and ever you know i couldn't disagree with any of that i still i quite like the film ultimately but it's very much in watching the cabal cut it made very clear to me it's it's this huge idea that barker has and there's this incredible i think aspirational element to it because he is he genuinely wants to make gay star wars effectively like like for for like odd little gay kids like the movie for them that will you know the kid he once was i think he wants to make the movie for them and the longer cut gives so much more breathing room to kind of exploring that world and just kind of like gently lifting us into this kind of like absurd world of of characters and and mutants and strange looks and this and that which all had to be stripped out to make it in a halfway commercial film i think even the director's cut at two hours is probably a little bit rushed and and you know kind of like runs through it the theatrical is 20 minutes shorter than that again and really it's like breakneck pace but um 
you know, it, there's, there's, it's this idea, like, I mean, he even hired Ralph McQuarrie, who, you know, famously did so much of the concept art and stuff for the Star Wars movies, who, you know, does artwork for this as well. I think it's, it's a very overt attempt that Barker was, I think, probably envisioned that this was going to be opening up. Like, this, this was the movie that makes sense as a franchise. <laughs> Jesus, you could go anywhere right. with Nightbreed 2, 3, 15, whatever. Not Hellraiser, that's insane. Um... You know, I think he he first saw all of this. This could be the movie with, and and he would get into the personal stories and the like. Those are you know those kind of like smaller stories and the backstories of all these these creatures in subsequent movies. But in the 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 original, it's really you're just kind of thrown into the middle of like a whole world of like crazy special effects and stuff like that. And the special effects are great. I think the costuming and everything is is really. It's really impressive. Maybe some of the designs are a bit cartoony. Certainly, I, you know, even I have some of them have that kind of like basket case sequel look. You know, where you're kind of like, oh, am yeah. I supposed to be scared that this looks like a fucking <laughs> shitty toy? You know, um, that fat yeah. guy with his fucking centipede arms or whatever. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <This is> stupidest. <laughs> I, I really shit like when the guy who was going to kill him just stood there and watched them come out real slow, just like <laughs> oh, pointing a gun, and I'm like, oh, what's going on? But you know, but, all, but all my main point, can, all those suit can actually do is wrap around his neck. Yes, yeah, no. But Great my stuff. my main point is that I think the journey element. What's interesting, I think, and nice about the film, and I think you have to frame it as I think this was Barker trying to create a larger kind of a world for himself to explore and kind of be comfortable in. I don't think it works ultimately, but I actually quite enjoy the elements that are there. But Nightbreed is, I think, in in all its shapes, it's a severely compromised work. And I think at the, at the core of its compromise is the fact that it's literally, uh, you know, the 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 central couple, boyfriend, girlfriend, Boone and Laurie are the most instantly forgettable people. You've made a Christ parable oh out of a dude in a fucking wife beater and jeans. It just... You know, He's like, the fucking worst. He, he just looks like a more fuckable Jay Leno. Like, what? <laughs> well, the people I, I was reminded of was Aaron like a, Boone. Aaron. Like Yankees uh, was, World Series hero Aaron Boone. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was reminded of completely was like Twin Peaks and James Hurley. Like that's that's yeah, who he is. Like James sure. was always cool, and it's just like no, you uh, you know, if there's a weakness in Twin Peaks, you know, that's the James being cool yeah. one is a little bit you struggle with it on, you know, if, particularly within season two where it's like let's follow James, and it's like maybe don't could we not for a bit, please? <laughs> not interested. Yeah, yeah. I um, suppose that yeah. that transfers over to Anne too, who who very much, or Anne Bobby uh, Laurie. Uh, it very much feels like a Twin Peaks girl as well. The rocker yes. chick. Oh, yeah. No, she's absolutely like... 90s alt girl style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I, well, even David Cronenberg might be right at home in, in the Twin Peaks world. But uh, it, it's just insane to me that it's like, here's your big swing. Uh, you could probably afford uh, plenty of actors who you want for <laughs> the villain. David Cronenberg. Uh, I think is he's built in this fucking movie. Cronenberg is <laughs> he's fantastic. Frankly. He, he kills. He's great. Yeah. But it's but yeah, just I think all the all the other money went on the choice. special effects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, two things I'll say. One, if if Hellraiser is a movie that feels kind of, you know, it's like a film without a, a firm setting that adds a, a kind of an ethereal quality to it. Uh, this movie's hilarious because it is aggressively Canadian, uh, which is it makes it fun. And then also, I love. We mentioned it just a second ago, but all the David Cronenberg slasher stuff is so fucking good. 
And it's so weird to me that so much of that was was just reshoots to give the film a little more traditional horror structure to it. Uh, but goddamn, I really wish that Five Barker would have just made a traditional slasher film where David Cronenberg gaslights his patients and then murders families because, uh, yeah, that 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 stuff is just fantastic. Like Cronenberg is unbelievably good in this, and it drove me nuts that we had to keep refocusing over to this uh, couple with the collective personality of a hunk of driftwood as they, uh, you know, fucking engage with the, the shitty X-Men that live in the graveyard in Canada. When all I want, I just shitty want the X-Men. David Cronenberg slasher. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> that's I mean, what they are, right? No, no 100%. You absolutely. That, that's what it is. But I mean, I think it's, it, it's fascinating. We look at like the elements of this, like basically this is a movie where the bad guy is a completely sexually neurotic straight person, nominally or not, not monster. He's a sexually neurotic normal person, unlike the monsters. And he wants to destroy breeders and people who, you know, propagate normal values um, and gaslights his patient to tell him he's not what he is. And so like all these, these readings are there, you know, that like the, for, for, you know, a, absolutely cogently queer text and there's other fun things that i noticed watching this too like for example the police station for the sons of freedom who end up you know storming midian and destroying it there's like multiple aids flyers like informational flyers in the police station which i think is like an interesting touch of like you know you know acknowledging that but like from the the, the viewpoint of the police who were not in any way in assistance during that and then also i don't know if it made it into the director's cut because i didn't get around to watching that again i really hope it does because in the really long cut um the the storming of midian in the cabal cut is like an hour it's like it just goes on forever <laughs> and, it, and it's like crazy stuff like it's got stop motion monsters in it which don't make it into i don't think either cut like there's there's like that's a lot yeah. of work that never even made it to any version but right in the bowels fucking midian there's an andy warhol marilyn monroe print just hanging out which i thought it's like a super funny thing to put in but it like how how obvious do we want to be but like we say it all it all comes back to aaron boone typical guy you know you'd give him a cigarette outside of 7-eleven i hate him too i cannot stand his ass how also how in in the longer cut does does the storming of midian last an hour because i gotta tell you the director's cut it's probably like 30 minutes and it feels like a fucking lifetime. Yeah. There is an enormous... All you're doing is like, oh, here's a guy with a boil on his forehead and he gets blasted with a shotgun in slow motion. It's like, is it the same set as uh, Mortal Com- Paul W.S. Anderson's Mortal Kombat might have reused the yeah. exact same set? Yeah, they, they took the like rope bridges fucking, over. Yeah, just a lot mm-hmm. of rope bridges over open pits. <laughs> well, no, no one it said really, the yeah. monsters were good at architecture. I don't know, they just kept going down. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the I, I honestly, I thought that the 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 sets were ripped from Ringo Lamb's Burning Paradise. That seems this predates predates them all. They were all they were all tuning into Nightbreed and taking out their notebooks. Okay, taking clearly. notes, taking fucking notes. Yeah, you know, um, but I yeah I. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just saying, like, you know, so you have these, like, there, there's all these elements, and there's also the priest, of course, who is, you know, disillusioned and finds his strength resolved to destroy the, the labeled queer community that he's also becomes part of. There's all these, like, great, 
jabs at basically at like straight culture at like all the like the, the these points mm-hmm. within you know that we're used to you know self-loathing gays all you know with the the priest religion and all of this stuff there's all these fun things in it and i don't think there's no real way i think and, and ultimately barker couldn't find any way to properly lay it out in a movie and so what you really have is something like the cabal cut which was reconstructed from like two different work prints and it's just it's like it's so much footage and obviously the pacing is glacial and it takes forever to get anywhere but i don't know in a sense it it does actually communicate i think better what barker like it makes me understand maybe for the first time what barker was really aiming for in his in his scope for the whole thing but i agree like you know if if for a casual viewer just you know like watching a horror movie i i couldn't you know say like oh you need to watch nightbreed like no you don't uh this is for hardcore barker heads sean i've known you long enough that as I was rewatching this for the third time in my life, all I could think the entire time was like, God damn, I bet Sean really hates this. Like, <laughs> it's just like, I could feel it because this is just, you know, I, it, it hits all of your, your trigger points for just not enjoying something. It's, it's, it's the anti Sean film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I will say like, there's a lot of things in a vacuum that I feel are great. Like there's a great Danny Elfman score. The special effects are nice. There's some shit going on here. It just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, it was kind of rough coming off of Lord of Illusions, which we'll get to because the stuff, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a huge, uh, I was saying off air, but I'm not a huge Elfman guy. Um, I mean, you know, you can't deny some of the stuff, obviously, but uh, um, the, you know, the stuff that has become iconic. But uh, I mean, I, yes some of the effects is cool but like when you're when you're just kind of like really despising the time that you're spending it's hard to to like oh ooh, cool you're like oh okay that's a reprieve it's a slight reprieve from uh wanting to um you know uh fake an illness so i don't have to continue watching this (laughs) so i don't have to be on the podcast um Right, so but you can yeah. understand the issue that it's like, you know what, you to really understand, you have to watch the, the even longer version. That's like, we acknowledge <laughs> and, there's a problem know, here. On paper, it's like, it, it is one of those things. It's like, okay, cool. Like, this is, to, you know, it's, it may be the reason why I've never watched like Jupiter Ascending or Cloud Atlas, because you're like, man, those sounds so interesting in my head. I don't want to watch it and ruin the potential that I have in my head of that being like a cool experience. <laughs> Cause sure. yeah, that's what this is actually sitting down. That's what everyone yeah. should do. Don't, if, if you want night, the, the best version of Nightbreed exists in your head. Just the best thing you can do is don't watch Nightbreed and it's great. Yeah. Cause I mean, what <laughs> I, it's a strange movie to exist. Cause it's essentially when you say shitty X-Men, it is, this this is a fucking x-men movie like like yeah i mean x-men obviously deals with this sort of band of outsiders who are persecuted by fascist forces and religion and x y it's very coded for uh at one point in the 60s uh certainly more the civil rights movement but uh beyond then into the modernities is very queer coded but uh yeah it's taking it through an ostensibly adult perspective, but it's still not an especially uh, mature film by any stretch, uh, which leaves it in this weird no man's land. But um, 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I appreciate a lot of things about this film. I, I do not hate it by any stretch, uh, but it is a fucking mess. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're yeah. right. I mean, it, it is a weird thing. I say, like, it's, it's gay Star Wars, effectively. Like, that's kind of where he's aiming, but it's horror rather than science fiction. He's kind of, like, leading more into that. So it, it is, like, R-rated, but it's still working with the kind of, like, broad palette of a Star Wars, you know, like George Lucas' films are not particularly nuanced in their their political overtures and their world vision, you know, which I, I'm not saying it's a complaint, but, you know, they, they work in broad strokes, generally speaking. Um, and this does too, but Star Wars also is fun for kids, whereas Nightbreed, I'm not even sure kids would... You, firstly, people probably no, don't want to watch it. No, it's not fun for anyone. It. It's, like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a movie that just fun. doesn't fit anyone. And like Any yeah. demographic yeah. is going to be scratching their head after this one. And I don't love like I don't love the effects because they do read very kiddie to me at times. Like yeah, it's like watching Howie Mandel's little monsters or something. Happen. Like, <laughs> I, you know, and as part of this in, in watching it again, I, I there is a childlike quality that I I admire in the again from the longer cut that I think there is this element of like this is adult Clive Barker talking to young little Clive Barker, the kid who grew up, you know highly ostracized and not sure what the hell to do being gay in like working class Liverpool I think he's from um you know I I can see that that element that that he really you know I can see what he's doing and why he was doing it and I I kind of admire the through line to it but commercially and structurally for the film it it's it it, it basically it, it's a film that requires an, an immensely receptive audience uh, to make any kind of heads or tails of it, and I think that's um, you know, that's it's something you you kind of have to acknowledge. And I I don't I'm not gonna like I actually really enjoyed the longer cut. I think it's actually it's a really really good time. I actually really enjoyed watching three hours and twenty minutes of Nightbreed. Um, but I you know I acknowledge that there's massive issues here. There's <laughs> it, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Oh. Um, it's it's very interesting. I think in that kind of like it's a movie about Clive Barker that Clive Barker made. Um, but if you're not interested in that, it is, it's just herky-jerky, like, fucking costume mm -hmm. showreels for ages and not much else. Yeah, well, it's Sean, like one of those movies that works purely as, uh, the metaphor. Like, if you're looking at it strictly through a queer cinema perspective, it's interesting. It, it certainly is. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it's still very broad and in that childish sort of framing where, you know, the psychologist is the boogeyman. The sheriff is a fucking Nazi. And yeah, it, it's very outsized cartoon representations of the forces at work against the queer community in the 80s and 90s in particular. And yeah, if you look at it strictly that way, it's a, it's a fun movie and you can have some fun with it and you can see some things in it. But the problem is sitting through the thing. It's just, uh, it's just so yeah. all over yeah. the goddamn no. place mm -hmm. in every respect. Sean, let me ask you something. Uh, I know that you mentioned earlier that you, you had somehow uh, confused uh, Barker's work with uh, a, a little movie called Lawnmower Man. So what if I were to tell you that uh, while nothing that Barker has done really approaches Lawnmower Man, I think his final film as a director, Lord of Illusions, 
certainly borrows some special effects from the lawnmower <laughs> man. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, and maybe that also contributed to me conflating them uh, in the gap between watching Lord of Illusions and Hellraiser. Yeah, that's that's entirely possible. But uh, this this movie raises an important question, which is, uh, what if Chris Angel Mind Freak was was doing real Mind Freaking and not just faking it? And what would happen? And Clive Barker has that answer for you. You know, oh. <laughs> it was interesting watching this coming off of you know David Dakota a week, uh, <laughs> because I was like, I was like, wow! Immediately, I was like, wow! This is a real movie. That's kind of cool. <laughs> it is. It is definitely a real movie. I, I think out of all of, of Barker's three films, this one feels like the most coherent, like actual studio film. Uh, but then again, it's it's such a personal Barker movie. And it, it kind of does what this is like his favorite thing to do, where he takes an existing short story or a character and then he just kind of blows them up and and puts them into a much bigger world. And this is another character too, this like Philip Marlowe, uh, the Scott Bakula character. And he's popped up in a bunch of different Barker works. And Lord of Illusions feels like it should be part of like a bigger franchise or some, uh, I don't know, some sort of TV series, uh, Scott Bakula's spooky detective. Yeah, again, but, it's fascinating uh, that like, I think both of these could, Lord of Illusions and Nightbreed both seem like absolutely franchise material, and yet we have 11 Hellraiser movies. <laughs> yeah, right, right? It's, it's the weirdest fucking thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just another example of Barker kind of zeroing in on his idiosyncrasies and then also eating shit through no fault of his own because uh, the, the studio wanted to intervene. And this is interesting because, you know, with Nightbreed, Barker felt that part of the reason why it failed was it was marketed as a slasher. And with Lord of Illusions, the studio was like, well, it's too long and we want you to trim, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, which he did. Uh, but they, they took out, I guess, most of the more philosophical story driven stuff uh, just so they could emphasize the gore. So in a strange twist, uh, they wanted Lord of Illusions to be goopier. And, and that's what they got. Uh, but yeah, this this is one where I guess I sort of lumped it in with a lot of studio horror from the era and, and never really gave it a second thought. And I feel like this is probably Barker's least loved movie. Uh, but while Hellraiser is obviously a masterpiece, I think this is a lot more of a coherent film than what we get with Nightbreed. Uh, and I don't know. It's just kind of a bummer because it seems like this is the point where Barker is finally starting to figure out what to do when a studio gives him money and how he can create something compelling. And then after this, he's like, fuck it. I don't want to deal with this stuff. Being a filmmaker is too stressful. So here we are. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I actually, I really enjoy Lord of Illusions too. I'm, I'm, I think it's a, it's got, I think, really fun qualities, and I think this is—I totally agree. I, this is on paper by far and away the most cogent of his films, and um, it really fits. I mean, he—he he spun it as a, as a Chinatown meets The Exorcist, you know. And I mean, that's very much what it is. It's a neo noir, sun soaked West Coast neo noir with supernatural elements. Um, 
it it seems like a perfect fit for like a franchise for you know Harry Demore, Scott Bakula's private eye who's who's drawn to uh, dark side to unnatural things or to supernatural things. It's, it's like an, a little thing they add into the into the text. The fortune teller tells them, you know, it's not you know you don't even it's not even something you know. You're just you will always be drawn into this kind of webs of intrigue. Sorry about it. You know, uh, like this is this seems key like for a TV show or something. Um, but I I think there's really good qualities to this movie. I think everything in this movie to me is is really works pretty well, except maybe the CG graphics. Um, I don't think it quite has a handle on the neo noir film vocabulary, visual vocabulary. I think that element struggles a little bit stylistically, but not so much in the writing. I think Barker captures that pretty well. I think it's you know, and and to me this is essentially. This is Clive Barker's The Prestige, in a sense. I mean, I was joking. It's kind of like it's it's his equivalent to the Nolan movie. It's you know, this is the Clive Barker movie about Clive Barker, the writer. You know, in the same way, The Prestige is kind of Christopher Nolan's movie about making a Christopher Nolan movie with a twist in it. You know, um, it's it's a, a movie about that gap between illusion and magic and what kind of you know the the nuts and bolts versus where the the imagination carries it afterwards and so on i mean it's got these nice little nudges and winks within it i even felt i thought it was really i thought it was kind of a funny little thing um i might be over reading in this i may be overly kind but it's kind of where my my you know my affections for barker brought me there but i mean in an early part of lord of illusions uh harry demore the the detective is is having a nightmare and it's full of all these like stupid fucking jump scare monsters with loud noises and stuff uh you know which is very much of the era like 90s horror this is absolutely how you do it it's how everyone did it and he wakes up suddenly from this nightmare and just goes jesus and it's almost like it's almost like harry demore is sick of his dreams being edited like shitty 90s horror movies but it also keys into the fact that like he's a guy drawn to this it's like he's stuck there as clive barker is also stuck there and i you know i think the, this is Clive Barker trying to play nice with what he thinks the studios can handle. I think this is custom written to fit. Like you say, Steve, this is this is the, you know, they, they can't fuck this up on me, right? They can't. <laughs> and I'll have a little fun <laughs> with it. You know, it's it kind of like I think it's cast a little wink towards his own authorship of it. You know, as he is, he is kind of like Swan trapped between you know, perspectives versus reality. Um, and they still did. They still wanted a theatrical cut. They wanted to cut out a lot of, like, his, the, the writing parts. You know, he he did admittedly, and I, it, was, it was better in that he, he did under, he did agree to do the theatrical cut with the understanding that the director's cut would be available to him. So the, he, he at least got that, which he did not get on previous films. So, you know, it was always, it didn't get a theatrical release, but the director's cut of this, you know, was understood he could release it later on, and it's on, you know, whatever Blu-ray edition you buy now. Um, but yeah, I think it's a film that's full of, like, it's it's just a very satisfying horror movie to me. It's full of cool shit and lots of gore and fun stuff. Um, I just, I quite enjoy it. It's got a good mandrill. It does. Which <laughs> it does was, have a good which, fucking which man no drill. one knows what happens to it because apparently the animatronic that was going to show its murder didn't work. So they just don't mention it again after a certain point. Damn. I love that. I'm <laughs> Yeah, I think my issues with this movie are no fault of the movie's own, really. It's just uh, the era. Like, I, I just struggle uh, a little bit with 
the way things looked at <laughs> this time, as we say, edited like a shitty 90s horror movie. But yeah, I was comparing it in the when we were talking earlier to uh, In the Mouth of Madness, where it's it's sort of a movie that maybe has some of Carpenter's strongest ideas. And I, I think that's similarly true in Lord of Illusions, but it doesn't look right. It looks wrong to me. It, it, it just doesn't feel like Prime Carpenter. It, it, it's it's got the '90s stink on it, uh, and this this definitely has that in Spades. Uh, this is a very '90s film, uh, and I, I think the other thing, uh, similarly, Daniel von Bergen is uh, excellent in this film, but it's one of those things where he is he's fucking mr kruger and bye bye to nothing else ever yeah. so it's just like you're watching this fucking guy who's supposed to be like uh, satan and charles manson merged together and i'm just thinking like kruger and it's just, oh yeah absolutely it, it he's like yeah uh it's it's like darth maul kruger <laughs> i mean he uh he does have a really good look uh, yeah. prior to getting, you this know, buried and just hanging out is awesome. Fuck. Yeah. He looks like, like homeless, big Lebowski. I'm really, really enjoying it. Like if I was going to be a cult leader with some magical powers, I too would forgo all personal hygiene in favor of just being a fucking slob piece of shit. So, uh, yeah, nothing but respect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, Sean, uh, watching this clearly it's, it's, uh, trending in, in a better direction for you than, uh nightbreed but i i'm i'm just curious about your thoughts on on lord of illusions because this is i don't know i don't think this one has many champions i mean i i i liked it uh you know um i, I think the issue is uh is i don't know my my uh attention or not attention but my interest just started to wane again as like it as as it starts to get a bit uh bigger um and and away from scott bacula um but i mean i i love the effects in this one like you were kind of uh trying to bait me into saying for nightbreed like the stuff here is like oh like i'm i'm on board i'm on board um but as it gets just a little weirder like that's the thing like you know in concept i want to see uh the filmmaker who's who's too weird for success or whatever, you know, made his name with this movie that's, that's franchise and everybody loves, and then just kind of does this like stuff that's straight from his head. Um, but, but, uh, so in theory, I'm, I, you know, I, Lord of Illusions is a movie I really appreciate and I, and I did enjoy watching it, but at the end of the, at the end of the film, I was just kind of like, I, I, uh, it, it lost me. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. But it's um, cool. Like, I would watch... Yeah. What illusions I would sit down and watch again. Um, mm -hmm. And I do like that sort of, like, noir thing to it. And and uh, I get what, what Adam's saying with um, In the Mouth of Madness, which is a movie I love. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't click with, with the bark, with the barkster. Me and him just aren't on the same wavelength is is the issue, even though Hellraiser is awesome. Like, I, I, I really mm -hmm. like Hellraiser. I don't know if I made that clear enough, but um, but yeah, he's not. No, he's not I my think guy. It's, it's totally reasonable, totally reasonable. But because I think I think you can love Hellraiser as much as you uh, as much as you hate gay British men, Sean. So that's, <laughs> it, makes it is interesting. Uh, I think this might have been an off air. Um, 
But I had no idea that he had anything to do with Candyman because I definitely you were talking about how this, uh, you know, fits in with movies of the of of this era um, in in many ways. And that's definitely one that I was I was like uh, thinking about. What was Candyman like? Ninety three. Yeah, it's ninety five. Like yeah, they're about... the same year or maybe it was ninety three. Maybe it was a little earlier. Yeah, uh, there's definitely stuff, you know, uh, you know, a person exploring this strange area type of thing, um, like going into this this uh, area that they're unfamiliar with kind of thing that that reminded me and just, you know, the look of the film uh, that marks that's marked by an era. But. But yeah. No, that's fair. Something I think that um, struck me in this, I just want to point out, is that I um, I feel like this is also Clive Barker's weird uh, ode to Italian horror, because the house out in the middle of the desert seems very much like Suave's The Sect, and then the guys getting yeah. buried in sand and stuff seems a lot like Fulci's The Beyond. So just something that struck me, because I, I don't see a lot of... I, you know, I don't see a lot necessarily of, in, of movie influences within Barker's other work I, necessarily, you know. I thought of, uh, uh, obliquely, I thought of, uh, like, Jali in Hellraiser, this idea of this woman bringing this, bringing men somewhere just so somebody else could kill them. Um, and then I, I was thinking of, uh, uh, the persona. I was thinking of persona in the, um, when she's kind of like, when it, when it kind of goes avant-garde, like cutting with the TV and the rose in the, uh, hospital room. Um, mm. But I mean, that just might be me in Les Barker. I think yeah, certainly I, the, the Giallo is uh, based off of Gothic architecture. They they share very similar antecedents there. Sure, like an A to C thing. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Especially even in a Mezzogiorno, there's a lot of uh, Gothic elements in a, an Italian horror. But um, yeah, I I think for me this is a, a really interesting film. Like a lot of stark imagery, a lot of just weirdos. What a weird cast. God bless Kevin J. O'Connor. Uh, well, it's just, a, it's a strange thing. And I, I kind of like it a lot. I, I didn't much care for it when I'd seen it earlier. Uh, but this viewing, it, it won me over a great deal, even though it is, again, it's got the nineties stink. I, I really struggle with this aesthetic, uh, in a way that I don't know. I, I think this is one of his stronger films for sure as writer and director. And I, I think it is definitely worth like seeking out. Uh, this sure. is, yeah, it, it's, it's just a, a, a strange one. And I think you end up saying that about a lot of mid nineties horror when, when it is, it, it, it is like Barker is most successful to me when he's not trying to make uh, functional movie or doesn't like when Hellraiser yeah if you look at it from like a screenwriting perspective or something like that it's a broken fucking movie like it, it, it really is structured horribly and that works to its tremendous benefit like frankly and this movie tries a lot harder and Nightbreed even more so perhaps to, to be a movie for people uh, you know <laughs> it's trying to be successful yeah. and the more he veers toward like trying to make what Hollywood thinks is a movie, the less successful things get. Uh, yeah. And I think that is a, a great problem with the climax of this film that you're describing too, is, is it just is like, 
what the fuck do we need this big action yeah. whole business? Like, who gives a shit about it? Like, it's just, I maybe that's yeah. I think that's well put. Maybe that's why it's like it doesn't feel as much like coming straight from the id that this last you know the climax. It does. It, maybe it is too much of him trying to do something that he thinks people want. Yeah, it shouldn't have an action climax, frankly. We don't need this, like, Raimi cam zooming out of a hole, and you're like, okay, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, Yeah, I mean, I, they, do, they, I do wonder if Barker's a victim up to of success. It. Yeah, everything like, building up to it, when he's emerging and his followers are, like, fucking kneeling on this glass, and he just fucking aces them all, and you're like, fuck yeah, this is going somewhere really interesting. And then it's like, no, it's going to an action climax with him standing over a bottomless pit for some reason. <laughs> it's interesting that no. we called Nightbreed uh, sort of his uh, gay X-Men or whatever you were calling it, because Jean Grey is in this one. Jean Grey is in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I no, it's it, a shitty X-Men, not his gay X-Men, <laughs> but I mean, you know. Yeah, I think it was a hell of a get in this one to get Famke Janssen just prior to GoldenEye. Um it's funny mm-hmm. the behind the scenes uh, Clive Barker is talking about uh, Jansen and says like I think she's gonna be a star and it's like cool and he also <laughs> actually he says something yeah. really I thought was really funny um, I mean she she was for a while she was like you know recognizably famous but um, I guess she never took off as much as, as maybe Barker thought she should but I thought it was really funny because he does also say in that same making of documentary that uh he thinks she's a really good for the role because he reckons men would like go out of their way for her, which is a fantastic mm-hmm. gay man insight when you look at Fanti Yance in nineteen ninety five. You're like, Oh, you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's a hell of a way to make her look like a, the fucking most beautiful woman on earth just by surrounding her by all these fucking weirdos. Even Bacula's kind of a weird looking leading man. He's got such they a give distinct back, oddity. They give to Bacula him. a tramp stamp, which is amazing. Yeah, I do like that. <laughs> I mean, this is Bacula at his most fuckable, but like he is just, he, he's hes an odd choice yeah. for this one. I think he does a great job. Good looking but, guy, good um, performance, but he's a distinct looking, he's not like traditional Hollywood handsome. He's got like a weird fucking nose. And yeah, it's just everyone in this movie looks strange. You know, you got Vincent Schiavelli, it's just a cast of weirdos, and then mm-hmm. plop down Fountain Jansen, and it's just like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. It's a smart move. Smart move. Um, well, I think we should probably wrap this one up pretty soon, boys. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, if you're someone not named Sean Glynis, you should probably check out some more Barker. Uh, but uh, yeah, once you get beyond Hellraiser, shit gets a little bit fucking weird. But if there is one, uh, you know, lost gem here, it, it just might be Lord of Illusions. That's the one that needs you to revisit it. Uh, don't don't keep going back to the Nightbreed well like me and just continually pulling up nothing. Uh, Sean, what are you putting over this week? Oh, that's that's difficult because I haven't watched a lot since uh, going to Koto mode. Um, besides, you know, rewatching Twenty Two Jump Street. But um, <laughs> yeah, the only thing I've watched is The Thing and Co- Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, if listeners of this show don't know about either of those, you should check them out. <laughs> Probably worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Those, I think that's that's totally reasonable. Uh, or twenty two jump street. Putting, or twenty two jump street. Hey, why don't you put over uh, the way that Jonah Hill talks to women? <laughs> <laughs> I hear he's great at that. Uh, Myros, what are you putting over this week? 
Uh, Spider-Man 2. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's the only way I was spending my Damn free Raimi. time the last night. Well, that's good, too, but no, the, uh, this is the return of the gamer god. Uh, here for all you hot gamers in the audience, you know. You need a, a fix. Uh, play the game that everyone probably already bought the day it came out. But, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. I'm having fun with it. It's eating my time, so I don't watch movies. Mm. I, instead, I just play Spider-Man 2. Jack, how about you? What are you putting over this week? Well, Adam suggests something that's fun, so I'm going to go the opposite direction with a really great film uh, called In a Glass Cage. It's a Spanish film from 1986, uh, the feature debut of Agosti Villaronga, and it is, it's not fun, but it's amazing. Uh, it's a really fucked up story, basically kind of thematically about Spanish complicity in Nazi war crimes, etc., but it's basically a movie about uh, child sex abuse and murder, kind of framed a little bit like a thriller, like an Argento de Palma kind of joint, um, which shouldn't work on paper, should be absolutely reprehensible based on that description, but it is a very severe, thoughtful, potent piece of filmmaking. It's, it's really, really remarkable. I was kind of blown away by it, and it's mm. not a film I've seen come up a lot. People don't mention it a lot. So yeah, in a glass cage. I've been, you seeing, get on, I've like, been seeing it a lot. I've been seeing oh, people bring it up a lot. Among, among your your circle of friends, are just into that. That's that's you might want to yeah, check yourself. You of... may be in danger. <laughs> well, Sean, let me ask you something real quick before I do my put over. Are you when when you play like NBA two K? Do you do you ever like create a player or anything like that, or do you just kind of play with the established teams? Uh, yeah, I mean, my created player is, uh, just hit 97 on the ranking and he's a perennial MVP Mm -hmm. with gray dreads and a beard. Wow. Okay. I was going to, I was going to ask if you, if you modeled him after yourself or anything. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Gray dreads and a beard. That makes sense. Uh, well, the reason I ask is because I'm, I'm putting over, I've been playing cyberpunk and, uh, they, they just released the 2.0 update and, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. And one of the things I noticed is when you create your player, there's there's a bunch of different dick options that you can go through, oh, like yeah, a genital yeah. slider. So you know, and and you, we got we're talking full penis physics too, like the thing flops around and everything. Cut and uncut. I, yeah, yeah, yep, it does have both. Yeah, you got but any you can any shape, size, aardvark, non aardvark, whatever you need. And so I, I put a lot of thought and a lot of work into designing my dick. And even though I'm putting over cyberpunk, I am going to raise this concern. It turns out I have to wear pants in this game. I can't <laughs> like I, I go through all this, this process of crafting the perfect dick and I can't even walk around with my dick out. And I think that's just incredibly fucked up. And uh, also, you know, I, I feel for, for Barker, you know, like this is when he was making Hellraiser and they had to uh, kind of you know, cut some of the sex scenes. And I feel like, the, the puritanical world that we live in, Sean, it, it doesn't allow you to go dicks out in a video game 24 seven, which is fucked up. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's good to raise awareness. You know, it's I, probably, I'll... if we're thinking about everything going on in the world today, the biggest thing is definitely me not being able to see my guy's dick. Inside makes, it makes you want to go off the grid. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Steve, for sure. I will say my cyber own character, I gave him a small, penis because i just figure i'll give him a nervy edge in combat situations but i haven't tested it much yet but i think my my thinking's probably sound yeah that makes sense that makes sense. Oh, not too nervy <laughs> we'll find I, out 
Uh, anyways, Sean, thank you for another wonderful Sean Tober. I hope you had some enlightening experiences, particularly watching all the shirtless himbos and leeches. Uh, already you know, thinking about next year. <laughs> it was worth it for, for Tom Ritter alone. Tim, Tim Ritter? Tom, Tim, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you call, you call him Tom. You yeah, know, yeah. It's kind of your little thing you guys got. No, I'm sort sense. of his Jerry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and once again, we're trendsetters because I guess, uh, was it Red Letter Media or something put out a, a fucking Tim Ritter killing spree video the other day. So ahead of the curve in, in the greater Milwaukee area per usual. Uh, but hey, if you enjoyed Sean Tober, if you enjoy the podcast, if uh, you know you just enjoy things in general, why not look at the description of this podcast and click on the link that will take you to our Patreon? And why would you do such a thing? And the answer is because podcasts cost money. And we need money to do podcasting. And, you know, the good thing is, is if you donate to our Patreon, it's not like you're going to walk away empty handed. No, no. You get some amazing gifts. Like if you live in the continental United States, I will send you a movie from my personal collection. Um, it could be an erotic home video that I shot of uh, a shot of Sean Glennis without his knowledge that could be sent to your door. Um, it's it's impossible to say <laughs> i've been hearing sean and this is this is just all rumor and innuendo but i've been hearing that uh there is a uh, a pretty wild sex tape of you uh literally just going for hours uh to the tunes of your big mouth billy bass which hangs <laughs> above your bed yeah, is, that, yeah. is that true yep it just keeps moving yeah and you haven't lived until you've got a VHS copy of Sean thrusting to a fish singing, don't worry, be happy. Did you put a camera uh, yes, in the, in the, uh, the big mouth? Bit I did. I did. Yeah. It looks like it's the sensor for, you know, him to kick in, to take me to the river, but it's actually a small <laughs> camera, uh, that I have a live stream of. So yeah, all, all of your bedroom action is now on the internet, uh, for Sean fans out there. Just, uh, DM me. I'll give you the link anyways. Uh, yeah. So you get a, you get a movie if you donate to the Patreon. In addition to that, you get access to our Patreon feed, which is uh, a bunch of old written and recorded stuff exclusive to Optimism Vaccine patrons. And then, of course, we do uh, new episodes just for patrons uh, on a kind of a haphazard schedule, but we do our best. And uh, I'm sure we get another one coming soon because there's been all kinds of contemporary horror bullshit that's come out this month that we should probably talk about, uh, Exorcist and what have you. Uh, oh, also, apparently the new Saw movie is, is online now, so I can, I can finally watch that. R really exciting stuff. So, lots to look forward to there. Now, if you donate at a higher tier, you, you get to vote in patron polls for future episodes, and you also get your name read out on the air. Myros, who are our $5 and above patrons right now? Uh, we have David, CWW, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. And we love each and every one of them. Now... If you really want to be an optimism vaccine hero, what you got to do is you got to donate at that highest tier, that $25 tier. And when you do that donation, well, then you get to choose an entire episode. And we actually have one of those coming up next week, if I'm not mistaken. And not only are we going to have a, uh, a patron episode next week, but we've decided to theme an entire month around uh, deranged, horny bullshit. Thanks to this patron request. Uh, so yeah, what, Myers, what did you brand this, this upcoming month as November? What did you brand it as? Uh, optimism vaccines, horn E of plenty. Love that. Real good stuff. Well, you should have called it a horn utopia. Come on. Hmm. Uh, wow. See, We're going to have to go back pitch. and forth on this. I, I also had a horn of horny on the, uh, on the possibility. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we're gonna workshop this. We'll figure it out. Uh, but yeah, what well, it's gonna be something horny, and it's gonna be the entire month of November. So it, exciting stuff. Uh, so, that, so yeah, you got that to look forward to. Also, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimism vaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at optimism vaccine. Uh, we're also on Blue Sky. We're, uh, we're, we're on the social media. You can find us. We'll, we'll fucking be there. Uh, so, Sean, thank you once again for a wonderful Sean Tober. And uh, we will be back next week with some real perverted bullshit.